0: Hello, everyone. Um, hello, Kaushambi Circle members. These are the voice notes for today, 29th November. These notes are about the readings which cover the period of Indian communist history from the late 1930s to the late 1960s, 1970. A very important part of Indian communist history where a lot of events happen. Uh, As mentioned in the last set of notes, these readings are in no way exhaustive, these readings are not meant to be exhaustive, they are meant to give a very very rough overview of what happened and uh, uh, for knowing more you will have to join the History Caucus. Uh, To begin with, the first piece of these nine readings, it's about the United Socialist Front and the rise and the fall of this idea of an alliance between the then Undivided Communist Party of India, and the Congress Socialist Party. Oh, by the way, uh, this is your convener, Anupam, and I'm joined with uh, Swati, Shivangi and Anirudh, who would be doing the other pieces. So, So, what happens in the late 1930s is that you have within Congress, you have Marxist elements, right? You have this formation of a left party within the Congress by people like Uh, Jay Prakash and these Marxists are desirous of an alliance with the then uh, uh, illegal and underground Communist Party of India but the Communist Party of India is uh, of the opinion and of the analysis that the Congress is a complete bourgeois element and that any and all non-CPI left organizations including the CSP are uh, essentially bourgeois front orgs and are to be avoided at all costs However, uh, that changes when uh, the international scene changes. So, a lot of the decisions of the Communist Party of India are due to the orders it is getting from the Comintern, which, by the way, by this point is a puppet organization of the USSR. So, at some point, the Dutt Bradley thesis gets passed, and the Dutt Bradley thesis says that to resist imperialism, uh, the Communist Party of India must ally with the Congress. And the problem with a lot of analysis that the common turn is doing is that it's not very sharp. It's it takes things like Congress as a monolith, whereas the Congress was this massive organisation with like deep penetration into the rural uh, peasantry, and it had completely contradictory factions within it. So. Hence, even when the CPI realizes that it needs to ally with the CSP, its attitude towards that alliance is completely opportunistic. And the CSP also does a lot of errors for its part. Like the CSP has this naive idea of socialist unification, of forming a grand Marxist party. But it like there are two, three like impossibilities which the listener would have realized by this point. First of all, Is the CSP a real party or not? Like, are you a member of the Congress or are you not? Or do you want to internally change Congress into a Marxist party? Secondly, this agreement the CSP has with individual communists of letting essentially communists within its rank as a mark of goodwill or whatever, it also is very odd because A... It's not a bi-directional relationship. You don't have CSP members going and, you know, talking with CPI, within the CPI's party orgs. B, what kind of a political party allows uh, political party members, uh, members of another political party within its ranks? Like, what if contradictions arise and contradictions arise? And the writer goes into essentially a deep analysis of why this fails. It has many reasons. But one of the main reasons is the CPI is at no point doing its own analysis of the Indian material conditions. A lot of its analysis is wavering because the international situation is wavering. At some point, MN Roy gets kicked out of the common turn and hence he's kicked out of the party. And his thesis was completely erroneous because if you remember amenroy like as as was mentioned in the last set of readings Roy had this thesis that you know india has completely gone into the like the the next revolution is a socialist revolution and we don't have to deal with feudalism anymore which of course was erroneous Roy himself is incorrect because he's deeply informed by things uh, from a very commenter point of view is not in india For a long period of time, he gets in, he gets arrested, etc., etc., as we went in the last set of readings. But it's not as if the communists who were in India were coming from the same ideological stock either. Like, the analysis of the Muzaffar Ahmed group is very different from the analysis of the Sri Dange group. And in the late 30s, it's just the fact that these people are getting locked up together, etc., etc., which is holding the party together. Because there is this large enemy, the imperialists, to fight against, right? That will not remain so once independence closely approaches. So, a lot of contradictions within the CPI, a lot of naivety and idealism within the CSP. By the way, the same naivety and idealism of the socialist party would be observed. Like, eventually, the socialists would form, try to form their own party, etc. Right? But uh, they'll call themselves the socialists to differentiate themselves from the communists. But, like, they started off as Marxists, but eventually where that marxism goes like is a completely different political arc the problem is that even when they become a party eventually which they should have a long time back if they had seriously wanted to make a grand marxist front when they become a socialist party after independence they have a completely wrong uh analysis of the ground conditions they end up contesting a lot of seats in the first election after the republic is declared in the 50s and They don't gain, they they are not even, like like they were hoping to be the largest opposition party. They are not. It's the CPI, which is the largest opposition party, despite, you know, having so many waverings in its ideological line, despite so much confusion, despite a lot of the CPI being jailed. Like, remember, India was only then like incorporating the previous princely territories. And in a lot of those territories, like Travancore, CPI is a completely illegal organization and even in india proper under nehru after independence a lot of cpi leaders are jailed so despite all that confusion the cpi ends up becoming the largest opposition party and the 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 readings will demonstrate how a lot of that is doesn't really have much to do with like ideological line and has more to do with popular uh, penetration of the cpi in the hinterlands and And there is a lot of ideological wavering, which will eventually lead to the split of the party in 64. But before we get to that point, we have to first discuss the rise of the party before we discuss its fall. So how did the organizations we all know and identify today, how did the Kisan Sabhas become a thing? How did uh, the the Shroon Federation become a thing? Uh, For that, we have Swati who will talk about it. Swati will also talk about Tevaga, which was the land movement in Bengal and before independence happens around that time, the great mutiny which precipitated the events towards independence. So, Swati, up to you.
1: Yeah, hi, everybody. So, uh, I'll start talking about... I have three readings to discuss. I'll first and foremost discuss Arindam Datta's thesis, which talks about the evolution of the mass organizations of the CPI. Now, uh, the AIKS today, the All India Kisan Sabha, is in the news because so many of us have been following what's been going on in the Delhi-Haryana border as the peasants from Punjab come over and in order to protest the farm bills. And there's been... Uh, a significant section of the farmers, if you have noticed, have been carrying the red flag. And another section has been carrying the green and yellow flag, which is the BKU flag, Chaudhary uh, Charan Singh's organization. So the red flag farmers are you are a part of the larger organizations of the various uh, left Kisan Sabhas which includes the AIKS the AIKS as it exists today and they also organized the Kisan March a couple of years ago all of us remember that so the AIKS has been in the news for the last couple of years I would say um and they have considerable grassroots strength. All of us have heard of the AISF, which again, if if nothing, if thanks to Kanaya Kumar, who was a member of that organization. We've heard of mass organizations like the IDWA, et cetera. But what is a mass organization? And how did the CPI come about establishing their own? So that is a question that Dutta is really addressing because Dutta first and foremost, and this is a thesis, so it's organized in chapters, and it might seem daunting at first, but I think it will be, it will prove really interesting because it begins by addressing that fundamental question as to why does a communist party need mass organizations? And the answer to that it draws from, of course, the work of Lenin, who says in what is to be done that the Communist Party itself, the party structure itself is a middle class organization, a a group of vanguards who take certain decisions true, but the party's backbone must necessarily be a mass organization and this mass organization uh, does not necessarily these mass organizations they do not necessarily adhere to the norms and requirements of the communist party in total. Mass organizations are expected to have their own agendas and their own plans and their which is roughly in alignment with the party but is also independent of it. So, it's this with this principle that most mass organizations operate and the CPI in the 1930s was beginning to understand that it needed further mass basis on the base though, of course, as Datta rightly points out that the CPI, it's, the AISF was not really the CPI it didn't spend a lot of effort into building the AISF. It's sort of through the participation of students and youths in the anti-imperialist movement that the AISF was sort of formed. The AITUC, which is the oldest uh, trade union in India, uh, that was in fact, it, it's something that predated the CPI. Uh, And it's something that eventually the CPI, it became a part of the CPI and it became the main trade union of the CPI. And of course, you have the AI case, which itself again has a fascinating history because it was formed of all places in Bihar uh, by a figure by a figure who was a Swami, no less. So therefore, it's these three mass organizations that Datta is particularly interested in. And he goes on in detail to talk about how they were formed, how they began to expand themselves. For instance, the AISF, which the party had hoped for, because again, as I said, uh, you know, mass organizations are in principle independent of the party in many ways. But as has historically happened, and this continues to happen till date, communist parties have always sought to sort of, you know, determine what their mass organizations will do and say. So they're they're not necessarily as independent as they theoretically should be. So this also happened with the AISF right from its inception with the CPI trying to sort of control it in ways that was not necessarily appropriate. But Again, the rise of the AISF was something that was also not necessarily in the control of the party. It is the spontaneous student youth movement in various parts of the country that really led to the rise of the AISF. For instance, one example where the AISF would make its presence felt was in famine relief in Bengal. In, in 1943, remember, the Bengal famine was a horrific situation in Bengal and the CPI had lost considerable credibility because it had supported the British war effort and so therefore the participation of the student youth movement in famine relief it would eventually become a very important part of the CPI gaining regaining its credibility in that area and in rural India in rural Bengal it was the AI case the Bengal branch of it that was organizing famine relief so It's the activities of these these mass organizations is central to the understanding of how communist parties work and have worked and they continue to work even today. Because if we don't really understand the strength of these organizations, because very often we tend to look at the parties solely through the lens of electoral politics and that's not necessarily how the left functions. Uh, and with this, I'll go on to the second discussion, which is about Debhattacharya's piece on the Tebhaga movement. Now, the Tebhaga movement, again, a very important e- episode in the history of the mass organizations of the Communist Party, as well as of the, of the AIKS. And again, you can trace that continuity from 1946-47, which is when the Tebhaga happened to today, when the AIKS is again on ground at the Delhi-Haryana border, demanding again certain rights for farmers, but of course, the tebhaga itself had a very specific context. Now, Bengal, as you know, Bengal in particular, after the permanent settlement in the seventeen in 1793, had it it created a class of zamindars, and what had happened in the process is that uh, the creator of the rights of the tenants, the peasants who did not have land was something that was seriously compromised and to be fair to the British they did attempt to bring in a few laws that would make things easier for the tenants but it was not really something uh, that worked out because the zamindari class was strong and it uh, they had their own you know lobbies but uh, which is why again if you look at the history of uh, peasant movements in Bengal the entire entire uh, 19th century is a period of sporadic peasant movements early 20th century uh, gandhi attempts to co-opt them into the indian movement but this goes on so the tebhaga in 1946 47 is something that centers around two districts of what is modern day west bengal and bangladesh and this area is called the 224 parganas the north 24 parganas and the south 24 parganas the AI case in these areas had initially, you know, they had given famine relief. And so they had grown closer to the peasantry. They had grown their base among the peasantry there. And the heart of the movement became two places called Kakthip and Namkhana, which are basically these are areas adjacent to the Sundarbans. Right. So very interesting, fascinating history of the location as well, right Adjacent to the history of the sundarbans where um, you have uh, the land itself is quite complicated. The demand of the share, of this movement was primarily read by the sharecroppers. You see earlier they had to give a half of their crops, I mean they, the, the crops that they got, they had to give half of it to the landlord. The demands of tebhaga, were first and foremost is that they would give only one third. Three, it would be divided in three parts, and one third would go to the landlord, and two thirds would go to the um, to the sharecropper them, themselves. And it is this demand, along with assorted other demands, that sort of became the heart of the movement in North 24 Parganas and the AI case was of course at the heart of it. Uh, you had the emergence of legendary leaders like Binoy Choudhury and Hare Krishna Konar. Now, uh, the Dibhatacharya piece is interesting because first and foremost what it does is it connects the Tebhaga to the uh, land reforms undertaking in Bengal the Operation Borga, which happened in the after the left-front government came into power, 1978-81. So, it connects the Tebhaga movement to the Borga movement, to, to the Operation Borga, which was uh, uh, undertaken by the left-front government later. And furthermore, it's also a very honest piece because it addresses some of the uh, flaws of the CPI leadership at the time as well because it addresses some fundamental things that for instance in a district like bortoman which as anybody which is also considered the rice bowl of bengal because it's that fertile and also the place where most of the uh, bengal is the rice bowl of india and bortoman is the rice bowl of bengal now that area is a, It had a number of large landholders and very interestingly the CPI leadership there did not encourage any such sharecroppers movement. So unlike say the 24 Parganas where the movement took this huge shape, there was no Tebhaga in Bordhoman, right? So the complicity of the CPI leadership often with large landholders is something that also that Bhattacharya points out. Again, as Anupam called it, ideological wavering. This sort of a thing is something that we will see. This sort of a thing is also what takes us to the next discussion, which is, of course, the naval mutiny. And again, the writer of this piece is very interesting. He's a Pakistani Marxist who also organized both in Pakistan and in Britain. So, but we don't have time to talk about him, Javed Iqbal. But what Iqbal's piece does, is that Iqbal's piece lays out the history of the uh, mutiny of the Royal Indian Navy. Uh, some of you if you're familiar with Utpal that's work, he had a very famous play called Kalol, which was based on this event so in nineteen forty six the Royal Indian Navy uh, they under they took on this historic strike where in the they simply said that we are no longer going to work now this naval strike would lead. To further strikes in the air force and then the army as well. It is at least at this point of time. Now India is particularly volatile in 1946 because it's at this point of time. You see that the INA has been already dismantled. Uh, Netaji has disappeared or is understood to have been died to have to have died or not died, but he's not there anymore. And the INA has been brought back to India. And the INA trials, the British had decided that they would make an example of the INA, right? So it's in these volatile situation that you have the Royal Indian Navy declaring this strike. And the immediate issue of the strike was actually not about the British rule. It was about their living conditions and their food. But, you know, they would uh, they were very organized. They got a strike committee which had a president and a vice president but uh, the strike actually struck a chord with ordinary people and so when they called for a one-day general strike it got an unprecedented unprecedented support among people the political leadership was in fact very ambivalent about this but the strike started to sort of take hold of people to a point where it would now spread all the way from Karachi to Calcutta. The strike would spread from the Navy. They wanted to remove the word uh, Royal Indian Navy and they started calling themselves the Indian National Navy. The strike spread from Karachi to Calcutta. Uh, You had the Armed for you had the air force and the army joining in. Now this was actually and the ships they even started raising, hosting the flags of the Congress, the Muslim League and the CPI. And this would lead on because the situation is now in a complete free fall, this situation would lead on to further strikes, general strikes such as the Post and Telegraph strike, you had a number of other strikes, uh, the Trump union strike, various workers trade union strikes all across India. So the situation had gone completely out of hand as far as the British administration was concerned. And what is really interesting is that in many ways these strikes signaled the end of British rule in India because the British could now very well now it was written on the wall for them that it was no longer possible for them to prop up the British reign in India with the help of the armed forces because the armed forces were going out of hand and in many ways you know, that famous statement by Attlee, who is supposed to have said that Gandhi did not contribute a lot to India's independence movement, a British departing from India. Again, that's a very controversial statement. But I do think one of the reasons why Attlee would have said such a thing is precisely because they had lost the support of the armed forces. Where do you go from there? The role of the CPI here again was quite dubious because the CPI, on one hand, it did support the strikes, it did gain a lot of popular support over this, but it also wanted, it also did not really, after a certain point, uh, put in its whole effort behind it. And there are instances such as uh, he points out, um, uh, Iqbal points out, the CPI. Uh, for instance the uh, 26 there was a, a strike on 26 February which CPI dissociated itself from even though it staged a rally with Sardar Patel on the same day so, the CPI's role in this particular movement too, which, offer, which after a certain point became this free-wheeling set of strikes all throughout the country from various working class groups, what role did the CPI as a communist party play in terms of you know taking the reins of the movement? Now these are this is a question that Iqbal's piece asks, and I hope we'll discuss this in the uh, caucus. Uh, now I think.
0: Shiange's uh, net has been bad, so I'll be the one uh, summarizing uh, uh, summarizing the three pieces. Now, the first piece, which is also a thesis, it is uh, uh, by this uh, scholar called Nathalie Reynolds, uh, "Midlife Crisis or Terminal Decline," and it attempts to give a more or less complete political arc an internal political arc of the communist movement from its inception to uh, to its split and hence it's extremely relevant for this period we are trying to study and in this piece uh, uh, like there are it it begins by the formation of the of the CPI proper, and it does list the various contradictions that happen in the formation itself. For example, it does talk, like remember in the last set of readings we had talked about how the CPI had formed and this gives a very succinct account of that of how yeah. essentially there was a, there was an emigre part of the communist movement and there was a native part of the communist movement but the part which ends up forming the CPI are very uh, l- l- like you have these certain personalities like etc who get into touch with uh, MN Roy etc and and there is a uh, certain formation. it's not that there were no competing formations it's also not that you know within the mainstream Congress there were, there were not attempts towards socialism but a certain lack of uh, how should i say a certain lack of electoral work in in the among the marginalized contributed a lot to the very particular formation of cpi uh, you have to remember that e- elections before independence did not happen in the way they happened after independence the electoralate was not at all universal, as it would become later. And this changing of the electorate had a lot to do with the CPI's own fortunes. The, the first chapter goes into the double birth of the CPI, its birth in Tashkent as well as its multiple births in India. Remember, the leaders were being arrested and whatnot all the way. And hence, uh, the ideological lines that were being Uh, that were being uh, uh, followed were wavering. So you had at first the revolutionary line which came out of this idea that, uh, you know, the Congress is completely bourgeois organization, The, the independence if any would come out of that would not be a real independence and it would be a puppet of the British imperialists. And uh in nineteen forty seven andre zadnov gives uh, gives this thesis and this zadnov thesis in the Cominter is the one which dictates a lot of the thinking at that time uh, and there were contradictions even from that point you had uh puranchan joshi for example who took a pro nehru line in the forties who Thought that independence would, uh, you know, uh, would would lead to um, prosperity and 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 the consolidation of the national bourgeoisie, etc. And you had people like Randai who believed the opposite. And Randai, for a lot, was being influenced by the Telangana movement uh, and its uh, initial successes. The thing was, and this is important to remember, that the Telangana movement had two phases. And the first phase is when the region is not a part of independent India and the next is when it does. And the way the movement happens in those areas completely changes. A lot of the successes of the movement, which are against the, local feudal aristocracy, you could not have realistically extended those successes after the military rule starts in those areas. And remember, the military rule in those areas extended for more than around two years, in which a lot of communists got arrested. And thus begins uh, Randai's revolutionary path. And remember, there were other uh, uh, developments that were happening in the same time. You had... For example, uh, the Yugoslavian Communist Party split from Moscow. Now, the problem is this insistence on sort of interpreting everything from the Marxist-Leninist lens, which was itself obtained from the Soviet Union. So it wasn't enough to say that, you know, there is a different strand of Marxism, In Yugoslavia which is doing its different thing and supporting different people in India you had to call it Trotskyite or Trotskyist and you know uh, you had to like level charges of left sectarianism and right reformism and uh, often you would see the political debates in the CPI becoming completely devoid of meaning when it came to material conditions and being embroiled in this war of jargon which were derived from political conditions completely alien to what was happening in India but at some point this whole uh, specter of left sectarianism was built and it was leveled. It would have been much simpler to say that uh, trying to push the Telangana movement after a point was erroneous but that was not enough you had to have uh, Rao who wanted to get Randai out of power, so they had to use like this idea of left sectarianism and left deviation and somehow they accused the same bunch of people of right-wing reformism and left sectarianism and, and this thesis does a very good job of explaining how a lot of these things were machinations within the Politburo of and the central committee of people trying to seek power, like Rao, and how a lot of the ideological clothing of those arguments came later, and thus begins the f- uh, failure of the revolutionary path and the movement towards the parliamentary path. In the parliamentary path was not chosen because of any great ideological reanalysis. It was more or less a pragmatic conclusion which also was pushed by the events of those times of how the Congress was reacting and it was initially quite successful like like mentioned before the uh, Communist Party did much better than its main rival the Socialist Party which as we have talked about used to be a part of the Congress the Congress Socialist Party right and electorally the Communist Party did really well but while it was electorally doing well and, and the piece goes into you know how it managed to navigate those times despite all the despite the arrests and despite the uh, despite the rep- political repression that was happening in this, those times. Remember, a lot of communists were in jail in the Nehru administration. And a lot of like the entire party was illegal in parts which were like Trevancore, etc., which were just coming over to the republic. So, despite all of that, electorally it did well, but uh, but ideologically it was a completely confused leadership. And what would eventually happen is that the same sort of tactics which Rao used against Randive would be used against Rao, right? Uh, Ajay Ajay Ghosh would come into power, and what Ajay Ghosh would do to Rajeshwar Rao would be basically what Rajeshwar Rao had did to Randive. Ajay Ghosh, for his part, would preside over what you can call like... time period which lasted a long time it lasted like what 10-11 years but it was more about placating contradictory people and sort of trying to play this centrist mediator role uh, people on the left people like Hare Krishna Konar and Harkishan Singh Surjeet and uh, Jyoti Vasu etc they would be waiting for a moment which would lead Which would essentially lead to the split of the party. And the thesis goes really well into how the divergent position of the right and the left of the party eventually reach a point where it splits. And the author does a very good job of sort of uh, differentiating what the part, like what sort of argumentation the party was using and what was happening in reality. So, you know, even the right and the left deviations were not really purely on ideological right and left grounds. They were much more real politic oriented. Even the whole issue with China, you know, the sino Soviet split and China attacking India and the party's contradictory positions on China, didn't really have much to do with China. And as soon as the CPM people split, they themselves start to like really moderate down their rhetoric because the split had more to do with real politics internal party divisions and power rather than you know sort of some sort of uh, very enthusiastic uh, em- embracing of china's position because the chinese analysis itself is like very 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 geopolitically driven if you read it like which is there in this thesis it uh, it becomes very obvious that you, like you first do a political act driven by uh, in this case strategy which was the uh, you know the war which by the way also was uh, strategically initiated from the Indian side with Nehru sort of you know uh, trying to be this naive person and say oh you know we don't know where the line ends etc etc MacMahon and the Chinese also equally naively oh no there is no real border and we'll push a little and pull a little and eventually they end up in a war and once you get into that position you have to sort of communistically justify the whole thing right and you are like oh India is a comprador bourgeois state with like blah when the CPM itself can't like contain these contradictions it will itself split into like the CPM and the and the noxials and the noxials would take the Chinese line on this so what is to be learned from this thesis uh, by Nathaniel Reynolds it's that it's very important for a communist party to sort of not be bullshitting itself. Like at some point you need to be you need to know what you are doing and what your analysis is, and you need to be analysis driven. You can't like at some point Nathaniel Reynolds' very well written piece goes into how like the all these uh, mumbo jumbo going on in the Politburo company. Completely separate from what was going on in the ground right like the split when it happened had not much to do with politics it had like it split on regional grounds for, for heaven's sake like That itself should tell you the true nature of the split and the wikipedia article gives an excellent uh, Summary of these events the you know, but again like if you look at it, it's all talking about the leaders Shripad dange does this and Jyoti Basu responds with that. Uh, fala, fala 136 delegates meet at, at Tenali and they are like, let's make a new party. All of this should be enough to tell you that none of this, uh, or not much of this, was ideological, uh, much more it was to do with power factions that had already formed and uh, an intense bickering that was happening within the party. In fact, this bickering and these, you know, Compromises after bickering and then sort of retrofitting your ideology to justify the compromise. This had been going on for a long time. Now, uh, the uh, the third piece, aside from the Wikipedia summary and Nathaniel Reynolds' really excellent uh, thesis on this, it it goes uh, it goes into the the chief errors which led to this route and and the lessons which were not taken from Telangana, etc. And what it says is very interesting. It says that the way which the communist movement had formed in India, the way the party had evolved, it focused so much on the state, essentially the Indian state and that the communist politics in India from its very inception to these heady years of the 40s, 50s and 60s was completely driven by its own outlook towards the state this idea that the indian state is the you know the driving force of the class forces in india and then to take over the indian state is essentially the primary duty of the cpi right and in doing so the party becomes undialectic it becomes a party which at all does not care about hegemony Which does not care about Congress's penetration in that hegemony, like how Congress sort of took over society, how Congress, you know, in Congress's old, like Congress often brags that it's the operating system of India, that no matter who comes to power politically, to get rid of Congress from the consciousness of society is an almost impossible task. Well, the piece sort of alludes to that. It says that what the communists did wrong was they focused so much on the state and so much on getting into state power that they completely disregarded trying to become a hegemonic force and hence they were never really a threat. Despite even increasing its present electorally and despite getting more members in its ranks, the attempt to take over the society was nowhere near close as the attempt of taking over the state and a lot of that you can actually... Like if you want to lay the responsibility of that towards something, you can lay the responsibility towards that of how the party gets formed and how the party evolves. And as we have talked about, uh, the party formed in a very, like Swati, how would you like uh, articulate this? Because I think the argument uh, Alam is making is a legitimate argument, this obsession with the state and taking over state power. And and, and this obsession, by the way, is cross uh, is across all the cliques. You have uh, you have the electoralists and you have the revolutionaries, but pretty
1: much everybody is focused on the Indian state and nobody... I agree with you and to a certain point, even I have been particularly statist for a very long time, but I do think one of the reasons why Indian communist movements have been so state-centric is simply because of its origins from the anti-imperialist movement in India, right, where you can't really shed off that legacy. We are still a country that's 74 years old and that that like, the, the burden of the national movement is something that remains i don't use the word burden in a negative sense but rather yes. the weight of it
0: you yes. know yeah uh on that note talking about the state remember that india was still not a complete country before the constitution and before like the other kingdoms were incorporated two very major communist movements we will talk about in these readings one in kerala one in telangana of course, we are discussing them in much greater detail in the history caucus. But like just the two little pieces, uh, Anirudh is going to talk about. So Anirudh, why don't you go next?
2: Okay, hello everyone. Uh, I, I will be discussing two uh, reading pieces. One uh, one uh, related to the uh, Kerala and other related to the Sri Kakulam uh, peasant up- uprising. So we'll start with the Kerala piece. So uh, in 1957, the, in the second general elections, uh, the Communist Party of Kerala won, uh, won in the won, and it made the government. So uh, this was significant in two ways because, as we know, the Communist Party uh, differs from other political parties uh, in uh, in uh, it believes in international proletarianism and uh, it is something uh, communist parties believe in. Uh, what do you say? Uh, they do not have any national sentiment. And the second thing is uh, they formed a part, they formed a party, they participated in the elections uh, and uh, formed a government in parliamentary system of democracy, which they are opposed to ideologically so this communist victory in kerala made uh, raised many questions and doubts among the people so uh, the questions were uh, did the communist party at last uh, uh, give gave up the means of violence to achieve its end and uh, many other questions like uh, uh, is the communist party now willing to work within the constitutional framework of india and be loyal to the country rather than the international uh, Communist movement. So, uh, so we'll talk about the change of line uh, in the Communist Party uh, that is from uh, mass uh, revolutionary mass movement to uh, electoralism. So, so the official party line uh, of the Communist Party changed in 1958 uh, at Amritsar Party con- uh, Conference the in in that party conference the communists declared that they are willing to work within the constitutional framework of india and move away from the violence to achieve their ends uh, but this is not their uh, own independent decision this can be uh, it can be said that it is uh, done under the influence of uh, 20th congress of uh, communist party of soviet union and also from the idea that since socialism, the idea of socialism has gripped very much uh, the millions of people in India, it is uh, feasible to have a peaceful transition to socialism. So, this uh, also the Amritsar Party conference, uh, in the Amritsar Party conference, this resolution was made uh, because uh, they have because of the experience in Kerala elections in 57 after the victory victory in kerala they thought that the same thing can be replicated in other states and socialism can be achieved this communist party is the first party in the world which has made government uh, through free and fair elections rather than a violent uh, revolution uh, so uh, the this piece goes into uh, firstly goes into the economic conditions that led to uh, Communist Party form power in 1957 and also and next the reasons uh, that led the mass upsurge in 1959 and communist losing power in 1960 midterm elections So now we'll go into the economic background of Kerala Major economic uh, problem of Kerala is its population and also the uh, limited area of land Uh, when we see the stats in uh, nine, when we see the stats of uh, when we see the stats uh, we see that the average population density is uh, three times more than the average population density of rest of rest of the India. Uh, so it's 1000 per square mile in Kerala while it's around 300 in rest of India. And this led to some uh, this led to some uh, problems in the field of agriculture. The per capita area of the Cultivated land was also very less. It was around 30 cents. So this, uh, with rapid increase in population and uh, less uh, cultivatable area, so uh, uh, this became one of the reason for um, main reason for careless backwardness. And along with this, there was another problem, uh, it, which was unemployment and underemployment. So, <clears throat> so these two. Uh, Points, the economic points were uh, major deciding factors. Uh, we can say that they are uh, two deciding factors in uh, for the communist victory in 1957. Uh, in addition to those, uh, there are uh, other reasons. So after the uh, the congress rule the people were fed up with their government uh, and also the congress uh, congress suffered an organizational crisis the ranks within the party broke uh, some of the top leaders uh, from the congress from the congress party left and they formed an independent party called uh, the praja socialist party uh, this uh, created a consequence of the nair, nair uh, community uh, uh, alienated from the Congress. So uh, from then on the factional fights between the Congress uh, uh, increased and people uh, lost faith in Congress that they can provide a sta- strong and stable government. So. So, uh, before the 1957 election as well, the Communist Party focused on uh, the Congress's inability to form a st- stable government and also uh, the economic condition of people of Kerala. So, uh, um, aside from the Congress Socialist Party, there are other two main parties that are Treasure Socialist Party and the Muslim League. So, p- why didn't people ch- choose these two parties uh, to... Uh, elect them to power so two main reasons were the praja socialist party by itself was not strong enough to form a stable government and the muslim league mainly uh, mainly was uh, a communal uh, a party which only uh, attended i mean which only served the interests of Muslims. so these two parties were not supported in the 57 election, so the remaining only party uh, st- strong enough uh, to form a government was com- the communist party, which was uh, elected to power. Uh, as soon as the communists came to power, uh, their first strategy was to alienate Hindus from Christians. So By Hindus, it mainly meant the Nayar community and the Elava community. Uh, The Elava is a backward community, but they gradually uh, uh, came. I mean, what do you say? They gradually uh, have become a a forward community. So, um, as the Elava community are already on their side, uh, their main job was to. Big, uh, bring Nair community to their side. So to achieve this, they proposed a bill called Education Bill, which uh, until then the uh, Christian Catholics had monopoly in education. But this bill gave uh, Nairs uh, uh, what say? Uh, yeah this bill gave Nairs uh, uh, access to education and all. So but at, at the same time. Uh, uh, fight broke out with uh, within the Nair and Elava community because uh, the Elawa being a backward community uh, wanted uh, caste-based reservations while uh, the Nair community suggested for economic uh, based re- reservations. The communist party went with the Elawa community and this alienated uh, the Nair community from the party. And uh, the education bill also became useless to them due to this kind of reservation. So all in all, the Nair community uh, were alienated from the party. Now we'll talk about the mass upsurge in 1959. So uh, there are many reasons uh, that led to the mass upsurge in 1959. Uh, all, uh, around 25 to 140,000 uh, p- persons uh participated in the agitation against the government uh, all the uh, commi- sorry all the newspapers except the six communist papers called for uh, the resignation of the uh, government and its uh, MLAs so the majority of the uh, lawyers and students also turned against the communists uh, and the trade unions and teacher uh, unions were divided mm. even the uh, communists admitted that it was kind of a ma- so the uh, cons- the Congress party being the opposition now had a dilemma. Uh, so whether it should act constitutionally, uh, it should participate in agitation uh, for co- uh, and calling for call for the falling of government or it should stay silent because uh, participating in agitation means it would kind of provide a uh, precedent in other uh, states where it, it was in power so uh, they initially uh, remained away from the station but uh, due to the circumstances uh, the official party line has changed and they uh, got into the station as well mm. the central government I- intervened in july 31st 1959 and imposed the president's rule uh, the president uh, also promised midterm elections in few months time that is uh, which will happen in 1960. So the law and order situation uh, kind of improved in the uh, under the presidential elections were held on 1st February 1960, uh, and the communist party lost. So what was different from 1957 to 1960? So uh, this time there was an anti-communist alliance. The Peja Socialist Party, the Muslim League, and the uh, Indian National Congress uh, had come to an agreement and formed an alliance. They had separate manifestos, and uh, but uh, they worked under the same banner. So the communist uh, contested contested for uh, 1.9 seats, and uh, as opposed to 100 in 1957. But, uh, So the uh, election results were uh, communists, uh, uh, including the independent uh, communists, uh, contested in 125 seats and won 94. And the other uh, uh, RSP won one seat, Karnataka Samti won one seat and uh, Congress won the majority of the remaining seats. So one thing was uh, clear from uh, the election results were the majority decided to vote against the uh, Communist Party. But one interesting thing to note here is uh, compared to 1957, the vote for the communists increased in one in the number of 1.2 million. Uh, but this also has to do with the fact that they contested in more seats when compared to 57. So what uh, were the implications of this verdict? Uh, all the ministers who were, uh, all the previous ministers who were in the uh, Power where also uh, everyone lost their seat. Uh, also, the question of uh, center uh, central intervention does not uh, seem to have affected the politics of Kerala much. Uh, the India chain of order, which was in peak at the time, also uh, was not of a major importance. Uh, the only uh, thing that uh, brought down the Communist Party from power was the uh, socio-economic situation uh, and the organization, organization and alliance against the communist parties. Yeah. So the next piece is about the uh, armed upsurge in uh, Srikakulam movement. Srikakulam uh, geographically is located in the northern part of Andhra Pradesh, then Andhra Pradesh, uh, which mostly consists of uh, Adivasi communities. So right from the times of East India Company, there are community, the Adivasi communities there have been deprived of their uh, basic rights and their right to access the forest lands that is their home and also its produce. So, uh, so the agitation and the unrest among the tribals was not new and it was also there in the British rule and also the Indian rule, post-colonial rule. So, in the post-independence period, uh, Srikagulam and Along with its uh, contemporary, the Naxalbari, uh, was the first instance of an armed struggle. Uh, it was done long after the Communist Party moved away from the uh, mass uh, mass violence line. That is, uh, in 1951, after it, it withdrew the Telangana Station. So. Uh, So Srikakula movement, though it gained uh, gained uh, prominence over the decades, there is not much literature available on this movement when compared to Noxal So now this piece tries to go into uh, 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 dissecting the Srikakula movement and also mainly the women's role in this struggle. So coming to the topography of this district, uh, the Srikakulam district is mainly divided into two areas, the hilly areas, which is uh, dominated by uh, indigenous communities and the plain or coastal region uh, is a second thing. So uh, there are four to five tribes out of which there are only two tribes, the Sawaras and Jatapus, which uh, almost make up for 70, 70% of the uh, population in the hilly areas. Uh, the Savaras were uh, the community who practiced the shifting agriculture type of cultivation, while Jatapus uh, settled, uh, did the settled agriculture. So, the one interesting point to be noted in these communities is they did not have any concept of private property. Uh, so, the Indian laws and uh, the Indi- Indian Indian. Um, uh, Jur- judicial functions were unfamiliar, unfamiliar and alien to them. So the main cultivation and the other elite works along with the domestic work was done by the women in this in these communities while men used to do hunting, uh, toddy tapping and other such activities. Uh, even when coming to marriage, it, it, is, uh, it is also a loose connection between men and women. The women are free to dissolve the contract and leave. And, leave. and the children rearing is also, uh, com- uh, what do you say, communally done rather than uh, The main uh, conflict arose when the, uh, the Savaras who practiced shifting cultivation uh, could not do it because it was de- declared Ill- illegal by the state and the forest officials under the name of afforestation. And the second, uh, 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 second thing was the, the communities who practice the settled agriculture did not uh, i mean they got under the uh, cycle of death from the money lenders who used to loan them small amount of money for seeds and stuff and also uh, give them the uh, oil uh, fuel seed uh, fuel uh, salt salt paper etc on credit so they at high interest rate so they got uh, under the cycle of debt, and eventually they were forced to mortgage their lands and work as vetti or forced labor in the in the fields. So the first uh, so these were main issues in uh, hilly region. So the, coming to the issues in plain, uh, the the issues were the agricultural uh, labor wages uh, and also uh, the control of wasteland. Uh, whom uh, to whom should the control go to the uh, government or to the uh, the people living there so the main uh, we can say that the upper uh, the uprising originates from the raitu uh, girjana raiti kuli sangam which literally translates to uh, tribal uh, tribal agricultural uh, labor association which was formed in 1958 under cbi so there were two main figures in this movement uh, ramulu and uh, satya master who began to organize the tribals against the uh, state and fought fought for their rights so uh, another prominent uh, leader adibattle kailasam also joined later the, the the all these main leaders were eventually shot dead by the state in enco- various encounter incidents uh, one of the issue main issue was taken uh, taken up by uh, these sangams were the appropriation of tribal land by the non tribals who migrated to migrated to here. So as the movement keep on growing, uh, so did the state repression. To counter the movement, uh, the Andhra Pradesh government established a new security uh, wing called Special Armed Police of uh, APA and it was deployed to suppress the movement so the moment in the moment took a violent turn in october 31st 1967 when the landlords started firing against the demonstration of uh, of the the agitators and also uh, assaulted many women now coming to the women's uh, role women's role in this um, in the moment though in 1958 to 68 uh, there were no women leaders in the moment there were around 500 people who 500 men who got divided into uh, 10 Dalams and 50 women along with them. So uh, the women... Role initially used to be cooking, uh, cooking, cleaning, etc., uh, etc. Et because the men initially used to be very protective of the women. But as the repression of the state grew, this uh, discrimination was dissolved, and women uh, also took up arms and started taking political uh, lessons, classes, etc., etc. Hmm. Also, uh, a, I mean, aside from the guerrilla struggle, the common people, who uh, common women, uh, who also, uh, although faced oppression and opposition from their husbands, uh, helped the Sangam in many way uh, to in many way to protect them. Uh, One thing, uh, one major issue of contention among women and men was women weren't uh, given much uh, power over ammunition and uh, other armed devices. One of these reasons was uh, was an incident where one of the women comrades uh, mixed up the wrong chemicals and uh, created uh, created an explosion in which she lost her hand. But this point was taken up in the party and was debated hotly and was supported by all women com- comrades and, all, and some of the men comrades. So, coming to the conclusion, women were organized and mobilized as uh, integral part of these Sangams. Uh, also, women readily responded to the crux of the issue, other than the is- issues they, uh, as the, uh, as the gender they faced, because uh, their main uh, uh, crux of this agitation was uh, uh, exploitation of uh, tra- state by the tribals and by the tribals.
0: Thank you Anirudh for talking about. The last two moments. um, Thanks, everybody, for and please come to the meeting uh, in the Google Doc that has been given. Please write your questions from all these nine pieces if you have any questions for the uh, questions to place before the panel, and we'll have a proper discussion in the meeting itself. Thank you, everyone.